Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Zach, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, Will. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Um, the, my brief bio is uh, really that um, I've worked in usually some kind of entrepreneurial capacity for for my whole career, either as a, a co-founder or you know operator, operations person, um, or um, the last you know, about eight years or so um, on the engineering side as a founding engineer, as a, a co-founder of something. So um, I focus in particular on early stage companies because I'm terrible at uh, bureaucracy and uh, company politics and that kind of thing. And I love the experience of going zero to one on things. The big ideas that I'm interested in, it's really the generalization of the startup way of thinking onto uh, what I think of as uh, frontier verticals or frontier markets that are lacking this kind of thinking. Um, in particular, for about a decade or so, I've been involved in a space um, that, that I've been calling Startup Cities for a long time, which is the application of startup entrepreneurship to the built environment and to uh, the building of communities themselves. I love that. I love that. Um, I, I want to talk about Startup Cities and... and um, what the future looks like there. We've got a lot of, you know, charter cities being built. You know, Scott Alexander has a has a weekly or biweekly thread where on Mondays he'll talk about, uh, give updates on all, all the new startup cities. Are, are there any that you see like particularly promising um, that, that, that you're excited about right now? Any efforts in the startup city space that you think are quite exciting? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, so I like to think of these projects as, existing on a spectrum where where some are innovating more on the physical aspects of, uh, of, of a city uh, and some are innovating more on the social aspects of a city. And the way I think of it as is that the city is this sort of very complex technology stack that stretches from the kind of laws and procedures and policies all the way to like a sidewalk or a light or a building or, you know, very physical like meat and potatoes kind of stuff. And um, in particular, a lot of the Charter Cities projects and, and, you know, some of those are exciting because they carry with them uh, innovation on this, uh, the more social side of the technology stack, right? And in some cases, for instance, a friend of mine, uh, Curtis from the Charter Cities Institute, the uh, executive director there, um, he has pointed out, I think quite rightly, that many of the Africa-oriented projects are really innovating on both direction, on both sides. Uh, they may have this sort of reform in law and governance social side, but they're bringing really a, a baseline of physical infrastructure that is non-existent in certain markets and certain areas. So although they're not innovating in the traditional sense of, say, uh, you know, 
pressed timber or like 3D printed houses or like this sort of futuristic stuff you hear, just having functioning roads and good sewage hookups and reliable electricity is an innovation in, in those markets. So um, I the project that I followed that, that I, I guess you'd say I was the, the most excited about, although I think it's it's in, in a rough patch right now, is a project called Ciudad Morasan um, in Honduras. Uh, Ciudad Morasan was, um, it's a, it's a, a um, kind of, it kind of straddles these two worlds of charter and startup cities in the sense that it has reform aspects associated with it. But many of the major innovations are because there is one really fantastic entrepreneur that is behind the building and owning and operating of the living environment. The other thing that's interesting about Ciudad Morasan is that it was deliberately built for the local market. You'll often hear in these projects that there's a lot of like, let's attract foreign crypto capital or digital nomads or something like this, which I'm not against or anything. But what was so interesting and I think really innovative and brilliant about uh, Ciudad Morasan is um, he did really detailed, uh, the, the founder Massimo Mazzoni did really detailed customer research in the slums of, uh, of Choloma which is the city where this place is located in Honduras and looked at, you know, budgets and pain points and the kind of stuff that's really about bringing a quality product to market and then solve those problems. Um, the future of these projects, uh, especially in the Honduran context remains to be seen. And there's a, it's a, in a rocky period right now. So who knows what's going to happen, but um, I am excited about those in the kind of charter city space. In the more startup city space, I think there's potentially some interesting things coming out of DAOs and the kind of Web3 crossover space, such as, for instance, Cabin DAO or City DAO. Um, and I'm also very interested to see the next project that comes out of Cul-de-Sac. Um, Cul-de-Sac is a low-car oriented urbanism a developer that has their, their sort of pilot project is in Tempe, Arizona. And I think they're probably going to do something uh, bigger and more like sort of more interesting and with more dimensions of innovation as their next project. We'll see. That's really cool. And just for the audience, can you define what the difference is between startup cities and charter cities? Yeah. So, I, and I should, I should say, this is like, this is sort of my own take here that there, the, uh, the nomenclature is always kind of changing and it's sort of like been this endless problem in the space of the, the shifting terms. So, um, I, I'm as confused as everybody else, but generally speaking, the, the, where I draw the line is that a charter city focuses on, uh, having a charter with some host government such that they are getting some differentiating law or governance aspect inside the city. Okay. Now what I focus on uh, and what I term startup cities are simply cities or neighborhoods built by startups, you know, actually run as a product, like run by run by startups. There's obviously a crossover because you could have, um, and I think in some, some of the upcoming charter cities projects and current charter cities projects, you have cities that have a charter with, uh, with a government of some kind, and they're also operated in more like a startup. So they're, you know, it's not a totally clean cut, but I don't, my view is that I think there's a lot of innovation, um, that doesn't necessarily require a charter and in particular in uh, wealthier countries. Um, and I think you're probably unlikely to get a lot of the promised innovation of a charter if you don't have entrepreneurial management which is to me the sort of the killer, the sort of like killer feature and the killer differentiator of um, what is likely to make these things successful. 
Got it. It does seem like one of the things that uh, particularly American cities lack is like super good management uh, for all kinds of reasons. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a VC last week um, who's thinking about running for mayor. I I won't name him um, in his local town. And he mentioned how he went to a conference with a bunch of local mayors. And he he noted how almost none of them were paid. This is a pretty wealthy state in the uh, western part of the United States. And almost none of them were paid, which leads to all kinds of perverse incentives where you know most of the people are real estate agents or have some other vested interest that they, they have to work on on the side uh, because, you know, it's, it's kind of a thankless job and you're not getting any money for being a mayor. And, and so it can be all this like self-perpetuating cycle of poor management and then things get worse. And then, it you know, less less talented people want to do the job and then, uh, you know, things kind of spiral from there. Yeah, that's a very interesting point uh, around uh, around pay. And, and I I totally agree with you that, um, you know, managing and administering a city should be a very highly paid job that attracts <laughs> the best talent that we can bring to it. You know, it should, uh, it, you know, mayors, mayors should be paid like CEOs. Um, because, in, you know, hopefully we would get people that would then behave like good CEOs, right? Exactly. Um, and, and I think the other the other thing that happens is, um, I, I, you know, th- there is this thing about, you know, sort of money in politics and that that's like a sort of a, a perverse thing or something we want to get out. And I, I sort of get where people are coming there. But I think what people overlook is that if you don't have the extrinsic motivator that's pulling in talent for essentially mercenary reasons of like I, I want this highly paid job, what you end up is are what you end up with are people that have intrinsic motivation of some kind, and I think the people's assumption, which I think is not true, is that intrinsic motivations must necessarily be better and lead to better outcomes than the extrinsic motivation of working for you know a, a good paycheck, right? Um, I think that is like. You know, it's probably somewhat true in the sense that you you likely want a mix of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, like in any other you know role. But um, I don't think that someone who's willing to work for free and has a lot of intrinsic motivation necessarily means that it's going to they're going to be the best leader and make the most rational decisions as a manager. Um, and it's just a weird, it's sort of just a weird uh, aspect of how city management and municipal governments and things have evolved that we're living in this world where the best people are often not uh, elevated to these important positions, right? So it's something like maybe we should have a more Singaporean model where we have, you know, the highest status thing you can do is become a civil servant, um, which is, is not the case in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I um, am very interested in Singapore for a lot of reasons. Uh, and, and I think there's, you know, Singapore is used sometimes casually as an example in the kind of charter city, startup city space, right? And um, we can talk about that if you want. But one thing that there's no doubt that Singapore has done well is, one, they seem to have much better land management uh, policies than, than many places. And the other is that they they aggressively uh, incentivize people in the civil service. For a long time, my understanding is this this is not the case anymore, but for a long time, civil service pay was actually linked to GDP growth, which is <laughs> sort of this... Um, sort of wild thing where it's, it's almost yeah. like getting a bonus for company growth, but at the level of, you know, Singapore Inc. Right. right. Um, they don't do this anymore. And I kind of, I, I remember reading a paper a long time ago about this and I can't remember why they stopped, but must've had a good reason, good but that, those kind of incentive schemes are fascinating. Yes, yes, yes. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
Singapore, you know, it is it is pointed to as as this uh, charter city kind of success. Uh, Hong Kong, you know, Macau, I, I think of a couple of places yeah. like this. Uh, w- one problem I see in my mind is that, which I think sometimes gets glossed over, is there can kind of be one Singapore, you know, there can kind of be one Hong Kong, Hong Kong. You know, Macau is like a gambling hub, and they each have their kind of niche that they 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 focus on. You know, it's maybe finance in Singapore that you can kind of carve out, and it seems like to have a successful charter city, you need to have something like that where you can kind of monopolize in some local domain, some part of the economy, which you can uniquely do well. Do you think that's kind of an, a, an important part that a lot of people, when they're thinking about these things, just kind of gloss over? I, I do very much think that there, th- I think there's several elements that get glossed over. And and one of the most important is, is what you pointed out. Um, I, I've been fortunate to visit uh, all three of, of these cities. And what you realize is they're, they have a very complex history at, that I think is hard to necessarily generalize onto, you know, Project X and some totally other context, right? right. Um, and my, uh, on my website, startupcities.com, I have a piece called Innovation by Copy and Paste. And, and, and I argue a little bit that sometimes in the charter city space, you hear this argument that's just kind of, if we can copy and paste, you know, thing X from Hong Kong or thing X from Singapore into this other environment that, well, hey, then it's going to sort of evolve in exactly the same way. And, and I'm just not really sure that that's, uh, that that's true. And I think the experience of people in startups really gives the lie to that because you realize how much how much you are constrained by your context. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah. Now, the other, the other piece of this, right, is that there is a strong foreign influence in all three of these stories. The one whose history I know the most is, is Hong Kong. And, you know, Hong Kong was... It was obviously it was like literally a colony, right? And had the back, you know, the, this sort of British basis, and it was administered in a kind of purely technocratic sense, um, in particular by a gentleman named John Cowperthwaite, who was the finance minister of Hong Kong. Um, there's a wonderful book called Architect of Prosperity, and it's a biography of John Cowperthwaite. And when you when you read um, this story of John Cowperthwaite and his management meetings. It's, he, it was essentially a corporate board with a CEO that was making these extremely technocratic decisions meant to maximize the wealth of, of the place. So now some people say, well, that's great. We should just do that everywhere, right? But, but I think a lot of other people would say, well, I don't really like that. That's, that's you know, not, uh, uh, you know, people are not generally speaking in favor of that colonial pattern of development, right? So again, how much can we generalize these lessons onto other places? Um, I'm not sure. Macau too, right? You know, if you go to downtown Macau, it's full of uh, Portuguese architecture, right? right? Um, so it's, it, it, this, these stories are, are, are strange. And, you know, if you go to Singapore, you know, what places are named after guys named Raffles, which I, I is not a, um, right. a local last name, right? Like th- there's just, uh, th- these places are, are complex and there's certainly some things we can learn, but I don't think we can just use a reference class of these three places and then say, like form our reference class of these three places and then say, okay, if we just do that here, everything's going to look the same. That's a mistake. So it's much more complicated. It does seem like uh, you, you you can, you've been able to outline, there are a couple of common characteristics, like really good governance. You know, it's probably like a CEO board model in the beginning to get things started. Right. Um, things are running very technocratic way. There's a set of good policies that seem to matter. 
but there's also this uh, humanities paper like type thing you have to do where you have to write out, you know, how is this thing going to be unique and, and what are the unique strengths that we can lean into mm-hmm. um, that that each charter city can have. So there's like there are some hard and fast. I, I, I'm getting the sense. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm getting the sense there are some hard and fast rules that like it's just better to do things this way. And then there's some things that uh, so there is some copy paste in that sense, but it, you can't copy paste the whole thing or you get in trouble. <laughs> Yeah. And really, I I mean, this is my view is that it's a lot of this stuff is very analogous to startup entrepreneurship. I mean, no, no, no person in a startup is going to tell you that you there's zero patterns that you can learn from any other company about how to do anything. Right. Yes. And I mean, in in a quite literal sense, many of the technologies that you deploy and the practices you adopt and the tools that you use, these are things from elsewhere that you are not building and you shouldn't build them because it's a bad idea. But to go from that, um, you you can get a foundation there, but everything interesting and hard about the startup experience and the whole experience of, of creating anything from like zero to one, it's not in there. It's everything that is not that. It's what what is it that we're doing that is different? How is it that we're internally differentiated, externally differentiated? Do yes. we actually understand the customer? Can we confidently deliver the ser- service or you know product? Can we yes. scale that? You know, do the unit economics make sense? Do we have enough money to make it until the unit economics makes sense? Like yes. all, all of these, these are all the hard and interesting things. And um, they really are not easily copied <laughs> from right. anywhere else. And uh, I would say, I would argue that the um, the city story is is pretty analogous to this. Definitely. It definitely takes talented entrepreneurs and founders to, to build these things. Absolutely. That's great. Um, I want to move on a little bit and talk about uh, something interesting you sent over in an email. Uh, why do Americans love to travel to Latin American cities so much? <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> the, I, you know, um, I've spent uh, I spent uh, several years of my career uh, living and working in Central America, and what you realize, right, is that there are many things that are very dysfunctional about Latin America. Th- things like security, traffic, you know, lo- lo- lots of this. Um, lo- these things create like really really serious problems, and I-, I think it's naive to not not acknowledge that. But on the other hand, there are things that are really wonderful and joyful, and that. Uh, people come from all over the world to experience. And a lot of that, I think, revolves around what is essentially just a heritage of traditional urbanism. Um, So you go to a city like Mexico City, and all the places that are fun and cool and that you want to go to, it's like, you know, some family is selling micheladas out of their garage right on some street corner and you go there and it's like the best micheladas in mexico city and oh this is so cool and i'm just like sitting on a dirty stool on the street and and whatever and um that is what makes it so fun and exciting it makes people want to walk around and hang out and fly there right um and so it's in a way it's the inability of these cities to actually, their failure to have the state capacity necessary to enforce their rules that makes it feel like a dynamic and exciting place that people want to go to. And in the United States, we have this, we have the blessing of having uh, rules that are actually like quite well enforced and the state capacity often to enforce these rules. But unfortunately, what that often means is that we, we, we sort of smother everything fun and dynamic and interesting about uh, urban life. Um, and we instead all pay $2,000 round trip to fly to Mexico City to enjoy it when we could enjoy it here, <laughs> you know, as well, right? It, it, so in substance, is it that we just have too much high modernism here? We're, we're too worried about, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> this, the quote, quote, Mr. Scott, like there's just too much. Um, 
uh, yeah, we're trying to plan too much and we need to let things like breathe a little bit more. I think that's certainly part of it, right? I mean, I think it's it goes without saying that like many of the things that are fun and interesting are essentially illegal or sort of illegal or would be illegal if people had sort of preemptively put rules in with the idea of what should and should not be allowed. I have a um, uh, I have a piece on my website about this um, called "Mixed Drinks with Mexican Drag Queens," which is focused on the whole like the whole street culture of Latin America, and in, there are all these things that just ex ante would be illegal. Like you can't you can't you can't sell mixed drinks from your garage in the United States. You can't. I mean, maybe if you go way out into an unincorporated county or something, you might be able to, but yeah. none of the customers are there. So, right. it, you know, it doesn't work. The uh, The street truck has to be in a particular location, highly licensed, you know, cost six figures to get going, all of yeah, that. Exactly. You can't just push a cart down the street. That's the high modernist side that I, I do think has a, um, a big effect on that. But I think there's also uh, another piece, which is that, American culture in general just seems to have a an expectation around externalities that many other places do not. Uh, if you spend time in Asia, for example, there is just not the cultural idea that like no one can make a sound or do anything around you that could possibly offend you in some way. Right. There's just you, you don't get that right, you know, you, to block those things. And people honestly, you know, they might be annoyed or whatever and not talking about it, but they're not they're not like seemingly doing anything to block it because they don't think that they have the right. right. In the US, it often feels as though people's idea, they, their sense of like the externalities they must be protected from is like very wide and very, you know, very expansive and no one can do anything that like bothers me in the slightest and I will enforce that in law. And so I think it's not just the the sort of structural high modernist governance side. I think there's also some cultural um, aspects here too. And then just the physical design, yeah. right, which is just lower density, which means, which is in part uh, kind of how this rejection of anything that could be perceived as an externality reflects itself on the yes. physical space right around us. So like extreme yimbyism. So most of places are just like very yimby and all kinds, not just like the, the zoning and what you can build, but just in general, like, you know, what kind of sounds you can make, you know, what, what you can do in your front yard, just more allow more things and don't really have this norm that, you know, Hey, like, my neighbor can't go put an RV in front of their house. Like that's, that's not a thing. It's like, unless my neighbor's yard, I, I don't have anything, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm kind of more libertarian there. Like I, I don't have any, uh, right to, to manage his yard. Yeah. And I, I think there is, you know, I don't think there's any, like, it's a conscious libertarianism or anything, but I think it's just kind of this sense of, and I think, I think it's also, it's one of the, it's almost like a kind of a broken windows policing sort of thing where yeah. if the default is like everyone's doing stuff in their front yard and everyone, you know, the sort of yeah. commerce is spilling out into the street, then that's what you think is normal. And so you don't, you don't look to stop it because it's what's normal. Right. I love it. I love it. So you just, just let it go. Um, Oh, going off of that, what do you think the future of urban planning looks like? You know, particularly with advancements <laughs> in AI and everything going, you know, what does optimal urban planning actually look like in the real world? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. And probably, uh, you know, actual urban planners and urbanists are going to watch this and, you know, uh, start start weeping at my answer here. <laughs> but um, I think actually there there's no doubt certain technological levers here that are very interesting that are on the frontier. And I think it's everything from uh, what 
I, I think of it as city scale observability. So I'm not that I'm not that bullish on the idea of like let's put sensors and everything and like try to yeah. optimize the city. This kind of like smart cities thing. Right. I, I'm not um, I'm not wild on that. But I do think it is the case that there's a lot of interesting data that is being collected now, and obviously that could be collected even more and you know in more places. And there is the technology now to kind of aggregate these things and and, and look at them. Um, there's a a reader of my newsletter and a friend of mine, Yoni Babosi, who's a uh, city planner from Albania, is working on a very interesting product called Layer, which it, it, he is he is an urban planner and he has these sort of layers of data that he overlays over cities. And um, many of the things that you see are really fascinating. And um, again, it's not. This is not like mega futuristic technology. This is simply making accessible the huge amount of data and kind of this highly distributed, uh, fragmented data everywhere in one place like uh, Yoni is doing. So um, I think that's a a cool approach. The AI stuff, uh, again, I'm not like, you'll sometimes hear people make these grand claims, which is, you know, the sort of almost almost like sentient AI is just going to tell us what decisions to make yes. in the city and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of that. But I think as an engine for imagination, uh, AI is actually really could, could, could be really wonderful. Um, I have a, an article coming out, um, hopefully in a, about a month or so, that looks at realistic real estate workflows um, but with y- using AI tools for these things, so it's things like looking at how looking at how an existing pl- um, space might look. So an aerial view of how it might look with greater sprawl. You can um, obviously you can transform the interiors and exteriors of buildings very easily now with generative visual AI models, right? Um, and there's some. There's some really wild uh, video stuff. Like I saw this guy, this guy make a. It was a Chinese restaurant that had been converted into a skyscraper. So, like, what would the skyscraper version of this Chinese food restaurant look? And it was ridiculous. But it was one of these things where that is, I think that's probably never been drawn before in the history right. of humanity, right? Like that that kind of pattern, right? And um, that's the kind of stuff that I, I feel very uh, interested in. It's the kind of long tail of human creativity that can be unleashed by um, by generative AI models, as opposed to, um, people kind of leaning in them, uh, leaning, leaning on them for decisions. The other piece I think of urban planning is the awareness that the high modernism stuff is just not working very well. And that there, we have to treat the city itself more as a computational system, which means actually allowing greater degrees of freedom amongst the nodes in that system, i.e. people and entrepreneurs and restaurateurs and all the people to actually do more stuff so that we end up with a more interesting and complex um, system there, the city itself, right? That makes sense. I, and how would you rate the current city you're in if you don't mind me mentioning it? You know, Denver, like, yeah, yeah. H- how much do you like Denver? How well do you think Denver works at some level? Yeah, so I, I actually think, so Denver has its problems, but it is uh, less nimby than West Coast cities, and therefore more affordable, and in some ways, like you know, sort of more dynamic, and with fewer of these like West Coast sorts of problems. Um, it's much more nimby than I would like, uh, certainly. Um, and I think the cost of living could be less expensive here. But if I go, you know, if I go on the roof of my building and I look around, there's lots of cranes building new buildings, Good. which I always view as a, it's a sign. Okay. You know, the city is not totally broken because right. it's growing. And also the supply is growing. Yes. Right? Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I'd rate it maybe a, a six or seven out of ten. Um, there's there's actually pretty good, uh, pretty good like user interface digital service stuff here, um, and a, you know a, a reasonable sense that people seem to care about what's what's going on. We have many of the same problems. I, I think I I think of them as it's essentially just like ideology run amok. You know, in, in many American cities where there's obvious basic stuff around, for instance, security in public spaces and stuff that is just, I, you know, it just it seems impossible to have a constructive conversation around yes. it. And, uh, you know, we certainly have our our share of that. Um, yeah, but really, um, Denver, Denver is one of these places that I think emerged also at a wonderfully a, a strategic location. You know, it's it's more certainly more west than east, but not all the way west. You know, right by the Rockies, and which is beautiful. We have we have tourism, but it's not a tourist city at all in the right. sense that it's not the dominant kind of aspect of the economy. There's a high level of human capital. You know, the Denver's median salary, you know, family income is is like reasonably high. I uh, I like it. It's it's not a bad place to live. That's great. That's great. I, I, you mentioned something there I, I think is interesting and I think is glossed over in uh, a lot of urbanist spaces and, and generally uh, in, in the conversation. And that is, I, I think, um, one of the most important functions of government is is in, in a city where I live, can any member of my family walk around at any given time of the day and feel right. like completely cool doing that? Um, why do you think, and why is like always overdetermined? Why do you think this kind of gets glossed over? Uh, and, and are there easy ways to make this more um, achievable yeah. in, in non-political ways, if that makes sense? Is there design things we can kind of engineer? Is it more lighting? Is it something like that? Like, well, have you thought about this at all? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, um, I I like that certainly as a maxim for understanding the health of a city, which is like, what would I be fine with? You know, especially if you think about it intergenerationally. You know, right. would my, you know, would my, my mother who's, you know, older, would she feel comfortable? You know, would my wife feel comfortable if I had a kid that's like 10 or 12, yeah. like, could I send them to the corner store right. and feel comfortable? Yeah. Right. Um, I think, you know, the answer for many cities downtown is no. And unfortunately in Denver's downtown, it's also no. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it is, it's sad. I mean, <laughs> So one one city council member who I, I believe she's still in charge of my like my exact district, her number one issue that she cares about, um, word I, I'm in one of the like least safe uh, districts in downtown, and the the issue that she cares about the most though is the fact that Denver uses trains still to transport things in you know in downtown and like what if those loads might be somehow pollutant or what if those <laughs> loads are you know toxic in some way and like that's the number one issue is like that's the right. hypothetical risk from using trains in a town built on the back of essentially mining <laughs> right. right and um this just feels like a sort of really crazy set of priorities to me. And maybe I, I don't understand something and there's a much bigger risk than I think from the train loads, you know, um, I doubt it, but that could be true. And, um, but as far as solutions in this man, like it's, I, I feel like this is a, it's like a third rail topic. And my, my focus is really that I think more, oh, more spaces that are, that are actually owned and operated, entrepreneurially owned and operated, tend to be safer spaces because there is someone with a vested interest in I'm the quality way. of the unit and the experience of the unit. 
So is it like, do crimes never happen inside a shopping mall? Of course, they sometimes do. And sometimes terrible things yeah. happen. But like the parking lot, you know, outside the shopping mall or even worse, let's say the the desolate streets beyond the parking lot outside the shopping mall right. is probably less safe than like inside the shopping mall. And I think uh, what you see, like what you see uh, in Denver is there are a few mixed use kind of big, big developments that include a sort of public space. Yeah. Um, there's a place called McGregor Square up the street. And you really don't, you don't really worry about your security in McGregor Square because it's just this very well-managed space, but you can walk one block over, you know, to some, some other square uh, that isn't, you know, it doesn't have the same incentives and you immediately feel unsafe. So it's just, yeah, better incentives equal better urban environment equals more safe spaces for people. So that's what I would like. That's great. That's great. I think uh, that reminds me, I think Brian Kaplan wrote an article about how the majority of like, quote unquote, law enforcement is actually just like private security in the US. And, you know, they can't really do much, but just having someone there walking around like does does help promote, you know, some sense of safety and security. Yeah. And, it, and I think it's also right that there's there's an there's an intrinsic motivation. I guess I should say there's an inherent motivation on the part of entrepreneurs, especially real estate entrepreneurs. They want lots of people. They want lots of people yes. there because it means they're making money, right? Yep. Lots of people in the in the retail store, lots of people in the square watching the football game, lots of people at the restaurant, lots of people living in the apartment building. Like that that's the that's the drive that's there. And it's just like harder to be the sketchy person that's gonna, you know, mug the old lady in a place where there are lots of people. So there's a way in which it's sort of like successful real estate entrepreneurship is itself safety creating because it creates population in a, in a location. Right, right. And more density is good, good for that kind of problem. Um, I'm curious, you wrote a great article um, for A16's future, A16Z's future publication around um, cities and their APIs. Uh, what are True. kind of uh, cities' APIs uh, and, and what problems do we have with them and, and perhaps how could we fix them? Yeah, I um, appreciate that. So the, the article is, is um, it essentially takes the like a, a sort of technology framing on something that I think is usually framed politically or ideologically. Uh, what people sometimes think I'm saying around city APIs is like literal digital APIs for like, I don't know, accessing your driver's license or something. That's fine. I like, I'm, I'm in favor of that stuff. That's great. But that's, right. that's not really what I'm, what I'm talking about. What I'm referring to is that the process of land use itself, showing up to a city and being like, I want to buy this land and do this thing on this, this piece of land, that is the fundamental API of the city. If you understand API as the integration point between user and system, right? Gotcha. And city, the city is the system and they're, they're going to be the ones that evaluate this plan and decide whether it's going to be allowed and whether it's in compliance and all of this. And then the user is say the, uh, let's say a restaurateur, someone that wants to open up a, a right. restaurant in a city, right? Um, so if you think of it that way, then we could gauge the health and success of cities uh, and their their land use policies in particular, we can we could measure them by these with the rulers that we use for uh, normal APIs and technology, namely things like speed, reliability, and complexity. Right. Uh, you know, anyone who's worked in software knows that good APIs are easy to integrate with. In other words, you don't have to like. You don't have to learn an awful lot to understand how it is that you need to use it. Yep. They're reliable in the sense that if you put something into it, you you understand and expect a certain certain response to come out, and that they're fast. In other words, they don't they don't leave you hanging. You know, right. you you uh, you need you need speed. 
Um, and if we just, I think, look with objective eyes on cities' land use APIs, they fail all three of those dimensions. Not not all cities, but I think I don't think it's unfair to say that a a a a large number of American cities, and in particular, the biggest and most populous cities and the most popular cities as destinations to live in fail on this. How do they fail? Well, things sometimes take years or a decade before you you hear anything. That's not fast. Um, You have no idea how that your thing is going to be evaluated or what even right. necessarily like what criteria is going to be used, who's going to be making the final call, all this kind of stuff. So the reliability is not there. Things can be killed for all kinds of random reasons and rejected yes. with, you know, no idea. And then, um, what was my, what was my last criteria here? Oh, and then, uh, complexity. Right. Um, and they they can be remarkably complex in the sense that it's not like there's this sort of simple standard data payload that you're, that you're, you have to send to the city, right. um, to, to get their approval. It can be very arbitrary or, you know, different between cities, very extensive. You might need some extra report. Um, and the, the total effect of these very broken APIs is to make it harder for normal people to integrate to the system that we call the city. What does that mean? How does that express itself in practical terms? It means fewer things are built and uh, we don't even actually know how much fewer things are built because many people are so will be so discouraged by this process they'll never even try and so they won't even show up in statistics, right? Um, so this is the API problem of cities. And in my opinion, it's maybe the biggest lever or certainly one of the biggest levers that a a startup city could, could, could use to really differentiate themselves from, uh, legacy cities in the United States. So if you just made everything a lot more legible and easier to do, people could interact with it and, and express and kind of take ownership and and build new things. In a, like on the margin, there'd be a lot more people doing that, and that would be really good. Yeah, that's right. It would be. It would. Uh, I I think I think there's good evidence that that there's a lot of pent up energy here in the sense of energy in the sense of sort of capital and entrepreneurial potential and ideas that are waiting to be expressed on the built environment and in our cities. And they're just, they're not going to happen because this API is so broken. So, you know, one, one startup cities sort of story here is if you are able to capture some of that pent up energy by saying, Hey, it's a 24 hour turnaround time for approval. And you only have to give us this simple thing. And this is how we're making the decision. So it's totally public and transparent. And like, you know, please send me your proposals, right? That That's a very different experience than what cities are offering builders now. Love that. I love that. No, that's a much, um, we can do a lot more with, with that in American cities in particular, where permitting is such a difficult problem to get through. Um, just, just being able to build things more quickly would be very, very helpful. Um, Zach, I want to move on now and do a round of overrated or underrated if you're, you're okay with that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I'll throw out a term and just tell me whether it's overrated or underrated. Um, this, uh, and perhaps why, perhaps it's too why if you've got something there. So the first one is Kannapolis, North Carolina, right down the road from me. <laughs> is it overrated or underrated? Um, underrated as an interesting story. And as an interesting data point for the charter city startup city space. That's great. That's great. And can you talk about why a little bit? I know it was a company town. Um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, why don't we have as many company towns anymore? Uh, we still, we, we have like these companies that worth so much, you know, Apple was worth 
two trillion, but you know, kind of refuses the company town model. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting. So I think, um, I there seems to be some association or some relationship between company towns and like a certain phase of capitalist development. Gotcha. You could argue, for instance, that some of the projects that are uh, in Honduras right now, the sort of charter city stuff going on there, some of them look a bit like company towns in the sense that the the developer of the town is also the dominant employer, um, either the only employer or or at least a dominant employer in the environment. And that's, I think, where you start getting towards this this company town dimension, namely where the the owner and operator of the environment is also your source of a job, right? Gotcha. Makes um, sense. Yeah, Canapolis is absolutely a case like that. Cannon Mills Textile Factory was like a sort of sheets and towels uh, manufacturer. Um, and they built a whole town around it. Why we don't see them as much anymore? I actually, I, so I think that's a really good question. I think some of it some of it is um, is cultural in the sense that, you know, some company towns, and for good reason, got a bad name. Um, I also just think that the company town form is, it's actually quite fragile. And I'm I not see. sure... I'm not actually sure if it's it's just maybe not a durable urban form, right? Right. Um, because they, they these usually they seem to transition into something else after a while. I would take issue or maybe challenge you a little bit. I think that a lot of large tech companies, in the benefits that they provide, they're offering something akin to a let's say a distributed company town experience. Because you have you have them say, "Here, I'll pay for your therapist. I'll pay for your gym membership." I'll pay for your, you know, your groceries. Right. I'll pay for a trip. I'll pay for the, you know, I, I, uh, Google has uh, negotiated contracts with uh, rental car companies, for example, just for their employees. So they're, you know, they run bus systems and stuff, you know, shuttles, all this. So it's like, it's not that there's not any of these elements here. It's just that we don't see, we don't see the residential aspect coupled now to the, uh, the, the corporate aspect, but I don't know. With remote work, who knows? That that could possibly change. We'll, we'll see. Makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it, it is notable that, um, and perhaps it's something like uh, agglomeration effects just matter less. And with with you know, the, if you're building software, it just matters less. You need less people all in the same place to to build something. Yeah, I mean, you know, the company town, the the classic company towns, you know, it's, it's industrial. It's you know, right. a whole bunch of people all sewing towels, you know, out of yeah. some big machines and stuff. And also very homogenous, I think. that There's a certain degree in which software, it's not that it isn't homogenous in a sense, but there's actually, there's so many niches in software that right. actually it's very heterogeneous in, in a sense, you know, as Definitely. far as people's skills. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the next one, the network state, overrated or underrated? This is, this is tough. That's a tough one, man, really. Um, I would say in, I would say maybe, maybe underrated in the sense that I think the idea of sourcing demand online for a physical location is is a great idea, and it seems to be that's like the sort of cornerstone of uh, of a, a lot of the ideas around the network state and you know Balaji's ideas, um, which I like. I would say network state is overrated as a as a sort of political thing, in my opinion. And I'm also personally very skeptical of uh, this kind of demand sourcing strategy that focuses on ideological or values only alignment. Oh, interesting. Um, this this I think I'm I'm not so sure about this, uh, and that. 
I don't even know if that that's that's not necessarily intrinsic to the network state idea, but it definitely has become, I think, in the in the sort of meme version anyway, uh, a big part of it. And I would say that aspect's overrated to me. Gotcha. So it's it's uh, <laughs> can you talk about that more? It seems like uh, this has been a, a big strain of thought recently. You know, all the Benedict option, all the evangelicals are run off together, or all the conservatives are going to run off together, or all the progressives yeah. are going to form up a little orb yeah. in you know the desert or something. And yeah, I don't I don't know. It, it's interesting. Like this does seem to be like the defining characteristic. It's we're going to have this in group around whatever given ideology a group has, and then go build a city around it. Um, uh, why are you skeptical of this? It does seem to have like a lot of power in people's minds. Yeah, I, I actually I think it has a lot of power in people's minds because people think that what they want is to be surrounded by people exactly like them. Yeah. But in practice, most of the time you have some like Venn diagram of overlap yeah. with people, but not it's not a big, not big overlap, right? right. Now you, you could argue that the network state is saying, well, it's the one commandment, right? And and hey, so that means that's only a little bit of the overlap, and you know that that's fine. That, that could work. That's fine. But how this usually gets expressed, I think, is more in the spirit of what you're saying, which is this kind of like super alignment over a, over a worldview. Um, my, my view is that uh, an environment where everyone shares the, you know, an identical ideology is more of a cult than a city. I think there are not good examples of intentional communities aligned on ideology that scale. Um, you could, you know, think of an example of, let's say, um, I don't know, like Oneida. I'm pretty sure Oneida, Oneida, New York, um, my, my history is a little sketchy, but I believe it began essentially as a value values-aligned community. And how it ended up is they now make silverware because that was how they were supporting their cult. And now everyone just knows it as a silverware thing. And it's just like a nice town like everywhere else. And I think similar to the company town that the, the pressure is actually towards the diversification of, uh, of people in the, in the space. Um, I think also the this desire for extreme alignment, um, if you've ever been in an environment, if, if, if you know you, the proverbial you have ever been in an environment where there is this extreme alignment, you often end up with like really ridiculous and intense conflicts, which is essentially the narcissism of tiny differences in the words of right. um, Bertrand Russell, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I, I'm, you know, do, would we want to generalize the narcissism of tiny differences onto the, the the city scale? The other piece of it is that it seems to be the argument is that the fundamental problem is lack of values alignment. And I'm just not sure that that is the fundamental problem with why cities are dysfunctional. And um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's not that there is. I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that values don't matter at all and that there's just like no room for this or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just not convinced that it's the thing, the important thing. There's even almost an analogy I think here with dating. You know, there's a way in which online dating apps have allowed you surface like the full half of the Venn diagram of the other person digitally. Right. And then you project onto them, oh my, you know, oh my God, you know, she she likes my my this band that I like. Right, and right. like so we're gonna be so compatible. And then you meet up and there's actually no compatibility and right, you end right. up compatible in the long run with someone who it's like they actually don't like, you know, 85% of the things exactly. that I like, but on this really important set of things we're we're aligned That's really well. Price. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's a really good point. You know, often uh what really matters from alignment is very illegible, like especially in relationships. I see people and, you know, I, my favorite is, you know, John Gottman. He, he was a psychologist, did all these studies around marriages and what made them work. And um, 
He, he's kind of a, a crackpot. People don't want to admit this, but because he would <laughs> he would back solve, you know, so he'd back solve. He, he, he didn't have predictive power in the future. He'd just go back and say, oh, like I noticed in the back of the future, you know, like uh, th- th- these things tied people together and made them successful long run in, in, in marriages. But the big thing I got out of his book was essentially we have no clue what makes people like get together and stay together for the long term. Like the values alignment thing is, is important, but it's not like you can't like just say, Hey, like I'm a conservative. I want to be with a conservative and you're done. That's it, it may be a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Um, there's all these other things that are very complex above it. You know, I think there's a, another dimension, not to belabor the point, but you know, the, there's some, the, it's, you, you may know this evidence better than I do, but my understanding is there's at least some evidence that people's political persuasions is at least partially heritable, meaning that it's it's genetic. Yep. So you can you could imagine this world of highly aligned, like you know, to say highly ideologically aligned people, that there would actually almost be a sort of very bizarre personality distribution there right. if if your politics is genetically correlated with other traits, which. You know, it seems like it probably yeah. is, right? Um, so it's it, it's kind of like what what kind of weird, you know, kind of one dimensional community ends up with only like the libertarians or only the conservatives right. or only you know these people all living together, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and you know, have you know, you, you don't get the diversity where there's there's you know, everyone's a farmer and or everyone's a forager, and so you don't get any of this balance, and all these things get can get really wacky really fast. Yeah, yeah, That's super interesting. I love that. Um, what one more term here? Seasteading, overrated or underrated? Um, I think seasteading is underrated. Uh, I've I've followed seasteading for a really long time now, like o- over a decade now, and I've spent time, you know, with many people involved in all of this. And it's look, it's very, it's 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 I would say the the hard version of going and yeah. building a you know building a new community because of the technological aspects, the the weather aspects. I think. Seasteading, I think also seasteading has um, oversold the idea of of the kind of institutional innovation that's going to occur by going out into the water. And I think I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, One is that um, as the the case in Thailand and, you know, some other places has shown, it turns out states don't like people, you know, claiming sovereignty (laughs) just outside the territorial waters. And the lines are sort of arbitrary. So they'll just go outside them or they'll expand them or whatever. Right. So that's a big barrier. The other is, I think, to it, it. you know, if, if I invent something new on my computer and I use it only just me, it's not really an innovation. It's right. an innovation when it enters the broader market and gets, you know, some non-trivial amount of market adoption, right? And it yes. becomes useful to people. And I think that the challenges like the, the technological challenge and the financial challenges around seasteading are um, – they, they have prevented and, and will prevent the kind of transition from I have this cool idea for how things should work to like this is widely adopted. But I think the the uh, there's a lot of interesting work that has happened adjacent like by the seasetting people about how do you design the platforms, what are the economics of the platforms, where are the levers for saving costs, what are the business models. All that is uh, fascinating to me, and I, I I think there's no reason to believe that there's not cool stuff that we could build out on the ocean that people would pay and to go and see and, right. and all that. So in that way, I think it's uh, underrated. That's great. That's great. Um, Zach, one last question for you. Uh, you're a young guy. You, you've accomplished a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, you're interested in a very promising space. What do the next 10 years look like for you? What are you thinking about? Yeah. So um, in my, in my, my day to day, 
I, you know, I write a, I write a newsletter and that's my involvement in the, the startup city space. I've done some advising and some other stuff in the, in the past. Um, but you know, my, my present involvement is I write and I think about this and I try to keep a good reputation and connect people via that reputation, via the, via the newsletter, um, to capital opportunities and other kinds of other kinds of things. So that's really the the very short term view here. The longer term view is that I think uh, my I think startup cities is really starting to cross out of crazy town, and there's there's just so much more interest right. in this space than there was even a few years ago, and definitely compared to ten years ago, it's just like unbelievable how much more there right. is. So uh, what I what I would like. Uh, to see and to be involved in are um, multiple funds that are associated with putting venture capital behind these projects is thing one. Two is the mainstreaming of the idea that startups should build cities and the attraction of high quality talent via things like you know, job opportunities and job boards and just like the memeing of it. Right. So that when people, people think, uh, you know, a smart engineer or whatever, they think, oh, I want to, what do I want to do? I want to, I want to build cities. I want to build neighborhoods and cities. And that's a sensible and non-crazy and actually good and positive thing to want to dedicate your life to. And then of course, um, to actually get involved in the space as an operator, which I had a, um, essentially a failed attempt at that in the, uh, from, roughly 2012 to 2016. And I learned a lot uh, on that road. And I would like to get back in the, um, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the saddle there. But it's something that I'm not willing to do impulsively. And then I would only do essentially based on really understanding the strategy and why it is that the strategy right. is good because it's the kind of space where it's very easy to rabbit hole and to waste a lot, a lot of my right, right. life, you know, chasing a rainbow. You need yeah. to be quite intentional about it. That's very wise. That's very wise. Well, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Yeah. Th thanks so much. Will. It was really a joy to talk with you. Um, well, I, uh, so my personal website and, and this is uh, Zach.dev. Um, Z-A-C-H dot D-E-V. Um, my newsletter is startupcities.com and I, I really welcome people to come and, you know, argue with me in the comments and, and all that. And it's a uh, burgeoning community with a lot of interesting people across disciplines focused on this topic. And then last is I'm Zach Caceres, Z-A-C-H-C-A-C-E-R-E-S on, uh, on Twitter. And you can always email me also at hello at Zach.dev. And I'd love to hear from your, your readership, listenership. Awesome. I love it. Well, Zach, thanks so much. We'll have to have you on again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Will. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.